Welcome to the Vine. It's so good to see you all here. I'm Zach, one of the pastors, if you're new. And we've been uh, going through the book of Genesis. We're going to continue this morning, starting in uh, chapter 28. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn there? And we're going to dive right in. Kind of right where we pick, pick up, right where we left off from last week. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some behind the sound booth. It'll be on the screen. But it's good to look at it there in your hands, not making this stuff up. Uh, so that's a good thing to know. So let's start in Genesis chapter 28, and we're looking at verse 10, okay? Starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So we got to remember the context here today. Remember, we always talk about reading the Bible in context. You never want to forget what comes before and what comes after. You can really get screwed up if we don't remember the context, okay? So what's the context? The context is Jacob's on the run. Jacob is on the run. Why is he on the run? Well, because he's a lying, thieving, swindling jerk of a guy, all right? The Bible doesn't whitewash these heroes of the faith. Well, they're not so heroic sometimes, right? And he's on the run, and he's got to be on the run because his brother wants to kill him. Because his brother has been the object of this lying and conniving and stealing and thieving. And so he's a marked man, and so his mom, Rebecca, says, you got to get out of here or he's going to kill you. So this family, Isaac and Rebecca, that we talked about last week, who had Jacob and Esau, they're ripped apart, Okay. And Jacob's on the run, and he's bearing the consequences of his sin, and he's in exile, right? He's removed from his home, and he's got shipped off to his uncle's house. His name was Laban. We're going to learn about him in a few next week and a few weeks after that, maybe. Now, what's the problem here? Because the Bible says in verse 10, right off the bat, the first two words is what? Jacob left. Now, if you read that, that should be like, wait, there's a problem here. Why is Jacob leaving? This is a problem. Well, why is it a problem? The problem is this. The covenant heir, I'll say it more, compl- more complex, and then I'll break it down. The covenant heir is leaving the land that had been promised to God's people. The covenant heir, heir, H-E-I-R, not like Air Jordan, last night dunk contest. Anybody with me? Chase, you with me? What? What's wrong with you people? This is like the greatest ever it's in the last 25 years. Go on YouTube and watch it. Not air like Air Jordan. Co- uh, Covenant Air, H-E-I-R, okay, is leaving the land that has been promised to God's people. So God has come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and said, I'm going to use you and all your descendants to save the world. And part of that promise is going to happen because I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place on which to, to do that. And that's, that's, that's essential. We're going to talk about this a lot today. That's central to God's promise. Well, the recipient of that promise is leaving the land. That's, that's, that's a big deal. What happens if he doesn't want to come back? What happens if he comes back and Esau wants to kill him and does kill him? What happens if he never wants to come back? Like living good up here 500 miles away with my uncle. 
eh, I'm good. So the fact that Jacob is leaving is no small thing. The covenant itself might be in jeopardy. So Jacob's on the run, far away from the land of promise, and he lays down to sleep on his way there. Let's read that verse. Um, yeah, it says that he laid down on a stone. Like, who grabs a stone for a pillow? I don't, I, I don't know what's going on with Jacob, our guy here, but he thinks that's comfortable. So, bro, have at it. Uh, what happens next? Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. So it starts at the earth, and then what? And, and the top of it reached to heaven. So we've got a connection point now between heaven and earth. And, bol- and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Okay? Ascending and descending on it. So Jacob lays down, he's got a stone pillow, and he has this massive dream. And the Bible says here it's a ladder. You probably, if, if you've been a Christian culture kid like me, some of you haven't, and that's fine. Uh, but if you're like me, you've heard about Jacob's ladder. Like just, that's just like a catchphrase that a lot of people understand. The problem is the Hebrew itself doesn't really talk about a ladder as much as probably more like a staircase. Okay? This is more like a staircase. And, and what we have here is this staircase that's symbolically the pathway in Jacob's vision slash dream, uniting heaven and uniting earth. It's a, it's a connection point, okay? And angels are traveling up and down on this big staircase. And we don't, we're not told what they're doing, just that they're doing that. What, what they're doing isn't the point. The point is there's a connection point. Did you follow that? Between heaven and earth. Angels ascending and descending along this connection point between heaven and earth. Remember that. It's important. And then what happens? God himself speaks to Jacob. And he's not on the staircase. He's at the top. And he speaks some massively profound words to Jacob. Let's let's look at what he says. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Does that sound familiar? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now let me just make a side comment. Again, context. What's the context? Did God come to Jacob right here? Because Jacob was all put together and just a great guy and he didn't have any demerits on the heavenly chalkboard. Is that why? And God looks down and goes, wow, Jacob, man, he's just a great dude. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give him some cosmic promises to save the whole world through him because clearly, Jacob, you're the guy. That's not the story, is it? 
notice at this point in Jacob's life, he's a scoundrel. And he's on the run because of his sin. And God comes to him in his grace. And notice that this is a pursuing grace. Jacob wasn't looking for God. He's on the run. God was looking for him. And he found him. Loving grace given not because of anything good in Jacob, just sheer sovereign grace. So that that should not be lost on us yet again. Let that jump off the page for you. Check it out. God's grace precedes any obedience on Jacob's part. Did you hear that? God's grace precedes any obedience on Jacob's part. Do you have a category for that? Christian, non-Christian? God's grace comes first. Jacob's or obedience or repentance for lack of obedience comes next. But it's not the other way around. And be warned, Christian or non-Christian, you flip those around And that's a one-way ticket to eternal separation from God. We cannot earn God's favor by trying to clean ourselves up. That assaults and attempts to rob God of his glory. Because why? Because the giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. And God will have no rivals. And he knows he gets much glory by showering a spotlight of grace on himself when it's not all about us and go, well, yeah, God, it's, it's 99% you, but there was that 1%, remember that 1% that I did all by myself? That was kind of cool, right? Like God will not have that. And when you get that grace and that explodes your mind in joy because it's completely all of grace, and yeah, you gotta get humbled, but then when you see him pick you up out of the misery of the mess that we make of our lives and go, you know what? I love you, I want you, I'm here for you, and I'm here to call you my child and give you a new identity. And out of that is gonna come motivation to wanna respond to me and love me. That's the beauty of God's pursuing grace. And if we go the other way around, all it is is a treadmill that you can't get off of. And it's so unsatisfying I'm just trying to earn, I'm trying to earn, I'm trying to clean up, I'm trying to earn, I'm trying to clean up, I'm trying to, I'm trying to have all this pretense and this veneer so that so everyone thinks I'm spiritual and, and, then, and, and then I can look, look, look down on others because they're not as spiritual as me or I can feel really bad about myself because I'm not as spiritual as them. It's like, man, that's, that's just pure spiritual exhaustion. That's not what we see in this text. That's not the story of the Christian life. That's not the story of our God. But this is the story of our God. And it's, and it's shown in verses 13, 14, and 15. And I want this to shape the rest of our time together. What God says here to Jacob is so central to your whole understanding of the Bible. And what I mean is, like, if you don't understand these verses, it'll be hard for you to understand how all the Bible fits together and it does fit together. It's, it's one cohesive story of what the Father has done 
to glorify himself through the work of the Son in the power of the Spirit to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus and see perfect peace and resolution and harmony at one day in history. That's what God's been up to from day one to the end of history. And if we don't get what he's saying to Jacob here, we have a hard time fitting it all together in terms of God's story that's revealed in the Bible. So my goal is that everyone leaves this room today understanding this story and how to make sense of it. It's kind of like this. Um, My family loves to do puzzles. And I should probably edit myself. It's more my wife loves to do puzzles. And once in a while, she can maybe rope in a couple kids in there with her. But here's kind of the dynamic in our home when we bust out a puzzle. My wife, she can be a little uh, focused at times, would be a great way to say it. And she loves, and this is what I love about her, she loves to get things done. She loves to get the job done. And there's some chaos there on the table with all of these random puzzle pieces, and we need to subdue the chaos and make all of the unbelievable mess here on this table fit into a cohesive whole so then we can go to bed and be at peace, right? Because when there's chaos, we can't do that. So sometimes it's like, babe, we got to put the puzzle down. She's like, no, there's one more piece. Like, I want to feel the, the beauty and the resolution of the tension being resolved. And so puzzles, when you spread them out, they can be a little random and messy sometimes, right? You got all these individual pieces that don't make sense, and we need to make sense of them. And some of us feel like that when it comes to our Bibles. Randomness. Like, what's Genesis got to do with Isaiah? And what's Isaiah got to do with the book of James? And and Jesus, he's cool. I like him. But sometimes he says weird stuff. And then there's these Hebrew poetry and these Psalms, and I don't can make sense of that. And Proverbs, are those promises or are they not? Is it absolute or is it not? And then there's this weird book called the Song of Solomon. It sounds really romantic and lovey-dovey, and I can't make sense of that. Like, what is that all about? And and, and then I've got, like, Revelation, all these apocalyptic visions and and Daniel, he talks crazy like that, too. And what, what is going on? Like, how does this all fit together? And you know how you, when you have a puzzle, you've got like your, you know, you've got like maybe a, a cardboard cover that shows you the picture of what it's supposed to look like, right? And so you set that on the table and you go, okay, it's like this beautiful sunset or this forest or this farm scene or whatever. And it looks really beautiful. And I know that this is the overarching goal of what I'm shooting for when we take the chaos of this puzzle and try to make it fit together. Well, what God says here to Jacob in 13, 14, and 15 is much like how that picture functions when you're trying to put together the puzzle. It shows you how all the pieces fit together. And here's the deal. Here's why I'm so kind of hyper about this stuff. I've been a Christian for a long time, you know, maybe 35 years. And I've been reading the Bible for a long time, but no one ever taught me that the Bible actually fits together. That it has one cohesive story from Genesis to Revelation. And that I play a part in that story. And I went to seminary at age 32 or whatever, and All of a sudden, it's like this light switch turned on. It's like, oh my word, this all fits together. How come no one ever told me this before? And now I know how Genesis connects to Isaiah and how Isaiah connects to Jesus and Jesus connects to Paul and Paul connects to Revelation and, and how it all fits together. 
What, what was before something more like a puzzle of random pieces all of a sudden had, had a picture to draw from to unite the whole thing. You with me? And, and I just feel very di- deeply that it's extremely significant for us as a church. If you call church your vine, the, the vine church your family, I want you to desperately know how this works, okay? So let's see this working out from our text today. We'll go backwards a little bit, then we'll go forwards a little bit, and you'll see it, Okay? So look at the facets of what God says to Jacob here in verse 13 and 14 and 15. The technical term here is he's reinstating the covenant. And covenant is just an agreement based on a loving relationship. He's reaffirming the covenant, okay? And we're going to see that this covenant has four facets. Four facets to his covenant promise to Jacob and those who come after him. The first thing is this, in verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. So your offspring, you're going to have children, and those children are going to be numerous. And what's that all equate to? A people. God comes to Jacob and says, I'm going to make of you a grand people. And you're going to spread out. See that in verse 14? From Abraham's line, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on and on. He promises to make a people for himself. And then what? Secondly, those people are going to have a place, like we talked about already. They're going to have a place, verse 13. And behold, the, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So I'm going to make of you a huge people, and you're going to have a place to dwell. This land, where, where he had his little nap on the stone pillow, that's the land that God is going to give to his people. So his promises to make a people that are going to have a place. And next we have the promise of his presence. Look at that in verse 15. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Keep reading, second half. I will not leave you. He's got the promise of his presence. So people, place, presence. And then finally, it's restated that they've got a proactive mission. People, place, presence, proactive mission. Look at second half of verse 14. And in you and your offspring, so all of these people that have a place with God's presence, what are they going to do? And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So it wasn't just that Jacob heard all these promises and it's like, oh, sweet, I got all these promises of God that's all about me and it's going to terminate on me and everyone else, forget them, it's all about me. No, 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 it's the opposite of that. It's Jacob, you and all the people coming after you, you're blessed to be a blessing. You're blessed to be a blessing. It's not just about you, Jacob. It starts with you, but it doesn't end with you. You're blessed to be a blessing. So the whole world is going to be blessed through what God does through you and everybody that comes out of this family that I'm going to create through you. So if I could have my wish, I'd have all of you memorize just these four words when it comes to making sense of your Bible. People, place, presence, proactive mission. This is the essence of God's story that he reaffirms to Jacob in our text. Now let me show you how this is the key to unlock the whole storyline of the Bible real quickly, all right? Hang with me. We're going to go fast, all right? So let's backtrack, okay, in our Bibles. What happens? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then what happens? He creates Adam and Eve, creates human beings. And what's the deal with them? Well, they've got 
a place. First of all, they're his people. He made them. So God creates a people, and he puts them in his place, the Garden of Eden. And it's clear that his presence is with them. The Bible says they walked with them in the cool of the day, and they communed with him. People place presence. And what's the proactive mission? We learned it in January. Actually, 13 months ago, January. What's the mission? The mission is be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So you're my image bearers. Fill the earth and take my glory. You reflect my glory in your very essence, your image. Take it to the ends of the earth. Spread my glory far and wide. That's the mission. So... Good news, right? It's all good. Wrong. They sin. And it destroys everything. Massive problems ensue. Relationships are broken between God, between each other, between the creation. They failed horribly. They assaulted God and thought they knew better and wanted to make themselves God. So what does God do? Well, he's a God of justice. So he brings justice. He also brings them a ton of mercy that we saw in in that text. But he is a God of justice, so there's massive consequences that flow from this disobedience. And they're kicked out of their place. And they don't have his presence with them anymore in the same way. And their identity as God's God's people is marred, and the image isn't erased, but it's shattered. And the mission is profoundly broken due to the shattering of the image and the shattering of relationships. The mission is hard. Creation doesn't do what it's supposed to in relationship with human beings. And marriage is hard. So what does God do? Is that the end of the Bible? Thanks be to God, it's not. He comes down, Genesis 12, and all of a sudden we got our guy Abram. Remember Abram? And he comes to Abram, and he comes to Isaac and Jacob, and and out of sheer mercy and grace says to them, I'm not going to give up on this plan to save the world. I'm not going to give up on this plan to save the world. And I'm going to use you, Abram, and and these kids and grandkids and grandkids and grandkids... And what does he do? He comes and he, and he says what we just learned to Jacob. This is what I'm going to do. You're going to have a, I'm going to make of you a people. I'm going to put you in my place. And you're going to have my presence. And I'm going to send you on a mission to shine my light to the whole world. I want you to be a light to the world, is what he says. The Bible says literally a light to the Gentiles. You, my people, are supposed to be a light to all those people who do not know Yahweh. And so it's all good, right? The curse upon Adam and Eve is reversed, right? We got the four Ps reinstated. Abram and all his people, the nation of Israel. Well, unfortunately, history repeats itself. And I'll give you the story of the Old Testament in one minute. God uses this family to accomplish this. And all that comes to pass. Huge number of people, huge nation, the nation of Israel. They've got a land to dwell, the, the land of Israel. And they've got very, God's very presence with them, symbolically in this huge temple that they build. And God chooses to come and meet with them in the temple, in their worship. His presence is with them. And they've got this amazing mission to be a light to the rest of the world. And it's all good. Nope, history repeats itself. And just like Adam and Eve, God's first people, these millions of people now living under the blessing of the four Ps, utterly fail over and over again. And that's in some sense the story of the Old Testament. God's people failed, yet God continued to show them mercy. 
But that mercy was not void of consequences. And at a certain point, God says, it's time. My justice has to fall or I wouldn't be God. You could accuse me of being unjust and I can't do that. And so what does he do? History again repeats itself. God's people kicked out. They no longer have a land. God uses foreign nations to come in and discipline his people. And they're not a people anymore. They don't have a geographic identity. That's taken away. So their identity as the people of God doesn't exist. They're hauled off to foreign nations. They don't have a land anymore. They don't have a place. The temple is destroyed. So the presence of God that they always knew no longer exists. And what about the mission? The mission is completely messed up because they don't have a place from which to do it. So let's review. Adam and Eve, people, place, presence, proactive mission, sin, messed up, judgment. God says, I'm not going to leave it judgment. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to come to Abram, Isaac, Jacob. Our promises for today, it's all good. It happens. Sin screws it all up. God comes in his judgment. And it seems as though the, the, the four Ps, people, place, presence, proactive mission, are shattered again. And it's a mess. It's a mess. And that's kind of how the Old Testament ends. Ultimately, those four Ps are in view, but it ain't happening. It's a mess. We lived in Nashville about uh, 10, 12 years ago, and our church there was really involved in the nation of Moldova. Moldova, I hadn't even heard of at the time. It's a tiny little nation next to Romania and smallest, poorest Eastern European country. And... Kim got the chance to go on a mission trip that they would take every year as a church to serve in an orphanage. And it was an amazing trip, very sobering. A couple poignant things that Kim learned is that she's sitting down talking to some of these little boys and asking them, you know, if they had a vision for what they wanted to be when they got older. And they almost all said they wanted to be police officers. And so the Americans, they're working are thinking, oh, that's kind of nice. Well, it's not that nice because all these little boys know that the police are corrupt. And if you're a police officer, you can have power. It wasn't a desire to see justice. It was a desire just to have power. So you can, you know, they're, they're just saturated with the Moldovan mafia or whatever. And it's just corrupt. And it's power. And the other tragic thing is that most of these girls who are orphans, when they age out, meaning they, they get too old and they have not been adopted, most of them either unwillingly or willingly, are engaged in the sex trade. And it's just like, my goodness, this is heavy. And one poignant moment Kim always talks about is when she was working with some other kids and off in the distance she hears a child crying um, because maybe they fell down and skinned their knee or something, just, just really crying, sobbing. And it descends on you like, these kids don't have any parents. And if that were my kid, I understand how to handle that. And I know that my love is going to address that situation. But these kids don't have parents that love them. They've got orphanage workers that sometimes steal from them because they're needy and poor too. They don't have anybody as a true advocate that loves them deeply. And that, that descends on you with just 
a sobering sense of helplessness. Like we're here for this week and we get to love these kids and it's beautiful. But there's a whole nation with systemic injustices that really, me by myself, I'm powerless to change that. And we go for 10 days and then we leave and that just darkness kind of descends on you like, man, this is so messed up. This is so messed up and I'm powerless to change it. You kind of come to the end of yourself. And I think that's kind of how God's people are left at the end of the Old Testament. It's kind of dark. And they don't have the power in and of themselves to manufacture the four Ps of people, presence, place, and proactive mission to come to pass. And there's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. These huge promises given to Jacob that we were reading about, they have not come to pass. Has God just left them? Until one, man, uh, until one day, another Jewish man comes along. And he makes friends with a couple guys named Philip and Nathaniel. If you have a Bible, turn over to John chapter 1. I want you to see this because it's very significant in terms of our text for today. Starting in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, John 1, 43. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Jumping to 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So these guys know their Old Testament. That's what he's talking about here. The whole messianic promise that there's going to be one coming to redeem the, the people of God. I think we found him. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's like, um, I'm not sure about that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nazareth, Nazareth was just this backwater town. And they didn't get how the Messiah was going to come from some insignificant place. Philip said, come to him. Philip said to him, come and see. So Nathaniel doesn't believe that this is true. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, like, they've never met. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, so before you had this little conversation with Philip, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So he's just pulling back the curtain a little bit to the supernatural and saying, Nathanael, there's more here than meets the eye. I, I saw you and I knew what you were doing before you even came and talked to me. And so 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. So he believes. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And here's what I want you to see. Check it out in 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, like this is as true as it gets. Listen up. This is as true as it gets. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
Does that language ring a bell? Do you see how that connects to Genesis 28? See, in Jacob's dream between heaven and earth, there's this huge staircase. And angels are going up and down on the staircase, symbolizing the presence of God and the connection between heaven and earth. Jacob sensed that. And he sensed it so much that if you keep reading in Genesis 28, you see that, that, that Jacob has some church right there. He sets up an altar. And he says, this, this land that I'm on, it's holy because God's here. And so I got to start worshiping if you just keep reading in 28. And what else does he do? In verse 19 of Genesis 28, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call this land Bethel or Bethel. And that means the house of God. So he renames that place. Like this is where God dwells right here. And that came to pass because God would dwell in that land with his people. But here's the deal. Right here in verse 51 of John chapter 1, Jesus himself is saying, I am the staircase. See, see these verses, we don't have an account of angels ascending and descending off of the body of Jesus. This is not to be taken literally. This is Jesus saying, remember the Jacob story? And there was a connection point between heaven and earth? Symbolized by angels ascending and descending. So he's saying, I am the connection point. That's me. I am the connection point. I am Bethel. I am Bethel. I am the house of God. So Jesus is making this massive claim upon himself. Angels ascend and descend on him because he is the pathway. He is the staircase. Access to the presence of God is through him, not a vision of a staircase. And so you, he's, say, he's saying to Nathaniel, you want eternal life? Come to me. You want to see heaven and earth kiss? You come to me. You, you want to see access to God? You come to me. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of people, place, presence, proactive mission. Je- let's track this, Okay. Jesus is the people of God. All the people of God in the Old Testament, they failed, all of them. Except for one, the true Jew, the true Israelite, the, the true one who never sinned and perfectly obeyed the law of God, who did not whore himself out to idols. Jesus is the people of God in the sense that he's the perfect embodiment of what they were supposed to be. He fulfilled it all. So Jesus is the people of God, and he is the place and the presence of God. He just got done showing Nathaniel that. I am the place of God. You don't, you, you don't go to a geographic location anymore with national boundaries. You come to me. I am the place. That's the point of verse 51 of John chapter 1. And Jesus perfectly fulfills the proactive mission of God's people. What did the Old Testament say about God's people? He says, Isaiah says in chapter 49, I'm calling you to be a light to the Gentiles. And what did Jesus come and do? They failed at that. They were darkness to the Gentiles. But Jesus comes and says, guess what? I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And I talk to Samaritans and I hang out with Pharisees and I talk to Jewish people that are corrupt like Zacchaeus and I talk to women and I talk to have children come to me, all different sorts of people. I'm a light to the world. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Israel failed to do. He is the people of God. He is the place of God. He is the presence of God. And he has fulfilled the proactive mission. And then what happens? This is where the story gets really exciting for us. Jesus leaves the earth physically, having perfectly fulfilled the four Ps of God's storyline. And what does he do? He sends his spirit to live inside of us so that through him living in us, God's people in his church, we now do the four Ps. And check it out. It's summed up right in the Great Commission. Check it out. And, he, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Can you see it? Who are the people of God? It's not just one nation anymore. It's all nations. And go and tell every nation, every people group, every ethne under heaven that Jesus is Lord. That's who the people of God are. All that say Jesus is Lord. So everyone's welcome. It's, it's a theology of inclusion. Everybody's included if you're willing to say Jesus is Lord. So Jewish people can come. And Muslim people can come. And secular humanist people that embrace relativism can come. And, and anybody else can come. And, and the place is what? It's no longer this geographic location. The place is God's people in Jesus, alive in them. So no more geographic location, but since Jesus is the place, we take him to the nations and we take him in us. It's no longer I, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. And the Bible says that he fills us. It says we, the church, are the temple. Remember temple language? What does that mean? For an Old Testament person, that means the presence of God. And he gives that to the church now. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that we are the temple of God's spirit. God's spirit lives in us collectively as a worldwide church. And what is the presence? The presence is verse 20. I'm with you always. Remember what he said to Jacob? I'm never going to leave you, Jacob. I'm with you, Jacob. Jesus says the same thing to his first church planters. I'm never going to leave you. And the proactive mission, what is it? It's so clear. Make disciples of every nation. Teach them, baptize them in the name of the triune God. Take this light of Jesus, and now you are the light of the world. You are called to be a city set on a hill where everyone can look and go, man, I think there's a foreign nation among us, but there's something beautiful about it. Madison can look at us and go, man, those folks are different. What's going on with them? There's something beautiful there. So here's the deal. This is where it comes right into your neighborhood. You can draw a straight line now because you know the whole storyline of the Bible and where you fit in. You can draw a straight, straight line from Jacob to where you sit today. And, and we have a burning desire for you to see how Jacob's purpose and our purpose are the same. We have different roles in different times in history, but it's essentially the same. God calls a people puts him in his place with his presence on his proactive mission. And you can find yourself taking part. The Vine Church takes part. It may be small, but it's still a part. And if you're a part of that, 
we're seeking to see this thing move forward. Your existence, hear this, is not random and purposeless. If you've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus to save you and view him as your greatest treasure in life, you get to participate in this glorious plan of God moving forward towards its final breathtaking conclusion. And what's that? Well, it's no surprise that at the end of it all, we see these same four categories. Check it out. Then I saw, this is Revelation 21. This is the end of the story. This is where eternity begins and history is wrapped up like a scroll. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So we've got a people in view, don't we? God's people. And is his presence there? Absolutely. The dwelling place of God is with them. We've got people and presence and place. The new heavens and the new earth. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. People, presence, place as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see it? This is where all of history ends. God has a people in his place with his presence. And there's no more proactive mission because the mission's been accomplished. So this is why Jacob was called. Genesis 28, 13, 14, 15. This is why Jacob existed. And this is what the purpose of his life was. And just like him, for those who are in Christ, this is what you have been called to. This is why you exist. And this is what the purpose of your life is. God's people in his place with his presence on his proactive mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we can see it and see how we fit into it. And Lord, would you help us, whatever part we may play, small or large, be filled with your spirit such that we can play a true role in these things coming to pass. And we thank you for your word that reveals it. In Jesus' name, amen.